Well, beloved, First Peter is where we are uh, studying the Word of God together, First Peter, as we move through this book, verse by verse, section by section. So I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, we have blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you, hopefully. And you can pick up one of those and turn to page 1014 in that Bible. That'll bring you to our text this morning. Uh, titled this message, A Call to Love. A Call to Love. Love, as many of you know, is a, a recurring theme in the Scriptures. <clears throat> and for good reason. When it is lacking or not as active as it should be, either in the home or certainly in the body of Christ, then things can and do go very wrong. There is no doubt in my mind that we need to be reminded again and again and again about what the Bible says concerning love. So let me ask you a question this morning. You don't have to to answer it out loud. I just ask it to have you stimulate the thinking and even the response in your own mind. But can love be commanded? Can love be commanded? Well, not only can it, but it is over and over and over again in the Scriptures, in the Word of God, in the Bible. Uh, But if we think of love, listen, if we think of love as only a feeling, and it's not that love doesn't have feelings, but if we think of it as only a feeling, such as a deep affection or fondness or as having romantic feelings for someone, if if we think of it only in that way, then it would seem strange for it to be commanded, right? That would seem odd. How do you command such affection, command a feeling? You don't. And more often than not, our culture, what we're exposed to all around us, they they speak about love as if it is only a feeling, which lends to confusion in the body of Christ and among Christians concerning love. Uh, They say things like, I found love, right? I found love. Like I was looking for it, and there it is. Um, So you don't see in the Scriptures a command to go find it. You see in the Scriptures a command to do it. Um, I'm falling in love. I'm falling out of love. All of these are related to the idea of love being an affection, a a romantic type of thing. And and again, a feeling. And love does have a feeling. But love in the scriptures is, is really related to it being a verb. It's an action word. It's a doing thing. With that doing comes feeling. But it's a doing thing primarily in the scriptures. We see this throughout the Word of God, but just to remind you, Jesus himself commanded love. I mean, we just, Terry just read about this morning, it's everywhere. But it says this in John 15, 12, this is my commandment, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. you know, it's not my commandment that you fall in love with one another in the body of Christ, but that you love one another. 
And he says, as I have loved you, and we know that adds a whole other element to this love. This is a sacrificial, deeply sacrificial type of love, a giving love. A love that is given even though it's not deserved. The Apostle John, very close to Jesus Christ, the, he loved the Lord, the Lord loved him. He spoke a lot about love. But listen to how he speaks about it. 1 John 4, 7-8, through 8, Beloved, speaking to the believers, let us love one another. Right? Verb, do, action, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Again, I think there's some confusion here because he's not just talking about general love, like a love of a parent for a child, right? He's speaking specifically about love of brothers and sisters in Christ, love of the body, love of the church. So he's saying, listen, if, they don't, if a person doesn't love the church, if they don't love believers, they don't know God. They don't know God. So a parent can love their children, okay? Children can love mom and dad. That doesn't mean they're a Christian. So he's just not talking about general love. Second John 5, he says, Now I ask you, dear lady, speaking to a woman of the church, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. That we love one another. It's a command. Command that we've had from the beginning, the apostle says. A command given by our Lord Jesus Christ to his people. I really like what John MacArthur says in his uh, study Bible. Many of you have that Bible. And he says this about the text that we're going to look at today here in 1 Peter. He says this that the love spoken of there, indicated here by Peter, is the love of choice. The love of choice. The kind of love that can respond to a command. It's the love of choice. That's biblical love. And we define love here. I've done it many times. I'll do it again. I'll keep doing it until I drop dead. A self-sacrificing, caring commitment. This is love. This is biblical love, which shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. It's a choice, my friends. It's a choice. It's a choice you need to make. It's something you exercise. It's something you do in obedience to God. So with that, let's look at today's text. We'll read through it, verses 22 through 25, and, and then we'll explore it together. See what God has for us today. Beginning in verse 22, the Apostle Peter writes these words, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So this morning, in order to better understand really what is the primary command here in this section or Peter's call to love at the last part of verse 22, specifically his command to believers to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, we're going to need to consider the statements 
that are right before that command and right after that command. So first, what is meant by the statement, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love? What is meant by that? What is Peter indicating? Other translations of the Bible, or another translation of the Bible, good translation, it puts the first part of verse 22 this way. This is the New American Standard Bible. It writes it like this. Since you have, bit, or sorry, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, and then the command. Okay? So, since this is true, you are to do this. Okay? So what exactly is Peter getting at in verse 22 then? Well, first, Peter mentions obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth. How are we to understand that? What truth did his Christian readers obey? And I would, this would be extended to us as well. This is the same truth that you and I uh, have obeyed. Well, in other places in the Scriptures, the gospel or the gospel message is referred to as the truth, the truth. Let me show you that. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, there the Apostle Paul writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, see they're tied together, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We find this connection also in Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. There the Apostle Paul writes, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10 Here we don't see the word gospel, but in the context, it is referring to the gospel, and he's talking about the wicked, and he says here, with all the wicked deception for those who are perishing because they, the unbeliever, refuse to love the truth. That is the gospel, and so be saved. And just a few verses later, we see in context, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2 also, verses 13 through 14, There it is written, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So based on that, I take the truth in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, our text today, to mean the truth of the gospel or the divine revelation of the gospel. You with me? Okay. Also, you'll notice uh, as you read through 1 Peter, so the same book, so there's a, here's a greater context. There, the Apostle Peter writes in chapter 4, verse 17, he says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Obey. So again, you see obedience tied with the gospel. We see truth, the truth, tied with the gospel. 
So for all those reasons, what Peter is talking about here in this chapter is obedience to the gospel, the truth. So the Christians Peter wrote to had, listen, heard the gospel message, right? Just like you have if if you are a believer. And by the way, just so you understand, it's not simply a message, right? Because we think a gospel, obedience, how do those go together? Well, it's not simply a message concerning the facts about Jesus Christ or his death and resurrection. It is that. It is that. Historical facts, for sure. Okay? But it's not just that. It is also a message, the gospel, that calls sinners to repent and trust in and follow the resurrected Christ. And hearing the message here, as we see these Christians, they obeyed it. How? By turning from their sin and rebellion and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you exercised obedience to the gospel? You may have heard it many times, but have you submitted to its call? There is no neutral territory when it comes to the gospel. No neutral territory. In it, the sinner is not given an option to take it or leave it. Okay? Or even take all the time that they want to think about it. That is not the gospel message. That is not how it's presented in the scriptures. But rather, upon hearing and understanding the gospel, the sinner is to repent and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything less is nothing less than continued rebellion against Almighty God. Understand that, my friends. Those of you who have not responded in obedience to the gospel as of yet, and understand that, my Christian brothers and sisters, for your family and neighbors who have yet to respond in obedience to the gospel, they are living in a state of disobedience, a state of rebellion against God. That is a dangerous, dangerous place for them to be. Which is why we should all the more appeal to them every opportunity that we can to turn, to repent and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ before it's too late. Notice in Acts 17, this is what is written there by Luke, verses 30 and 31. He says this, the writer, The times of ignorance God overlooked, he writes this, but now he commands, okay, he commands, what's he command? All people everywhere to repent. That's the gospel. It's a command. So he's not asking. He's not suggesting would you would you consider maybe Jesus? I think it's a good idea. None of that. God commands. 
It is, our, it is the sinner's inward rebellion against his creator that pushes back against said command. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What man is he talking about? Jesus Christ the Lord. He's coming to redeem his church. He's coming to judge all rebels. So, here, Peter's writing to Christians, believers, those who have been obedient to the gospel. It was the Christian's obedience to the truth then, or the gospel, that, listen, resulted in their souls being purified. Okay? Or their souls being cleansed, cleansed. The grammar here, this phrase, having purified, having purified, it's, it's a perfect active participle. It, it, it simply means that it looks back to a specific past experience, something that happened, that has a present result. Their souls, having been purified, are purified. Okay? So what past experience might this be referring to? Well, I would believe it would to be their conversion or their initial stage of salvation. Okay? So obeying the truth, hearing and submitting to the truth of the gospel, their souls were purified. That is, they were converted They were washed in the blood of Jesus. They were made new creatures in Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that they might honor and serve the Lord with the remainder of their lives on this earth. The Old Testament looked forward to this salvation reality, which is often referred to as the new covenant, for the people of God that Peter here refers to as the purification or the cleansing of the soul. Let me show you that. Found in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, looking forward to this salvation reality that would come through Christ in obedience to the gospel. Verse 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, God, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. Another translation is filthiness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, the Holy Spirit, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now look back at First Peter one twenty-two, our text this morning. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Again, I believe, referring to their conversion. So having been converted, having been transformed, having been cleansed for a sincere brotherly love. Okay? The word translated for It's a marker that generally indicates purpose. 
purpose uh, or the goal, okay, or the goal. So I mentioned this earlier. I like the way the New American Standard Bible translates this passage because it helps bring that out a little more clearly. Verse 22, again, in the New American Standard, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Okay? For a sincere love of the brethren, for this purpose. So, hear me. What I believe Peter is pointing out to his Christian readers is loving their fellow believers is the goal or purpose of their purification or their conversion. In other words, God wants you, Christian, because he's not just writing, we can take this directly because he's writing to Christians, and if we are Christians, this word is being spoken to us as well. God wants you, Christian, to sincerely, genuinely love your brothers and sisters in the Lord and has prepared and enabled you to do that very thing through your conversion. Or you could say that when you became a Christian, you were made part of the body of Christ, placed into the body of Christ, and purified in order that you would truly love one another in the body of Christ. Beloved, God's intention for the church is not for it to be just a social club. Okay? Yeah. It's, it's something, it's supposed to be something very unique on the planet. It is not just supposed to be a gathering. But rather, it is to be a unique family, a God-honoring family, a loving family, one selflessly committed to one another and always seeking and striving for each other's highest good. That's what the church is to be. That is what God intended it to be. That is what he purified it to be. Lots of things hinder that, beloved. Sin, our selfishness, our self-focus. Often there's a lot of love going around, but it's self-love. It's the wrong kind. It's a sinful love. One writer puts it this way, this purification of our souls has made it possible to love one another without the selfish desires and ambitions of the flesh, enabling us to sacrifice our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So genuinely loving your brothers and sisters in Christ is the way I understand this, the goal that the purification of your soul has in view and has made possible. You with me? So let me illustrate this. Illustrations are, sometimes they're good, sometimes not so good. So, But I, uh, sometimes I put on, maybe you do this too, I put on torn up jeans with the purpose of working out in the yard. I put them on with a purpose. So, it only makes sense then for me to go out into the yard and work. 
or do what I was going to do, which was the intended purpose of having put them on. It not only prepares me, but there's a purpose for doing that work. You ever done that? But I have a special set of clothes for doing outward, right? Okay, so it, it would not make sense for me to put on those messed up jeans and then go sit on the couch and watch television. Or worse yet, get into bed and go to sleep. You kind of getting where I'm going? Your conversion, your purification at the initial point of your salvation has a purpose or a goal as well. Okay? That you would sincerely love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It makes no sense then to do otherwise. At least in God's eyes, it makes no sense. And clearly, I believe that's what's being indicated here as well. Let me read, read this to you. It's... Um, just as another passage to consider, uh, it's just a book over. It's Second Peter, so you can just flip to the right from where you are now. And it's in chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. I'll read those to you. Listen to what Peter says there. His, that is God's, divine power, verses 3 through 9, has granted to us all things all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have everything we need. We we don't need something else. We have it already, okay? To exercise godliness, to live for him, to honor him. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He's obviously forgotten something. God has has saved you. He has cleansed you. He has purified your soul in order that you might live for his glory and his excellencies and comply with these things that are stated here, pursuing these things and adding them to the faith that brought you into that saving state. And one who doesn't, they've obviously have forgotten their cleansing. It's like forgotten I put on my jeans, my holy jeans. Why are you laying in bed? You're in holy jeans. I forgot. 
Why don't you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? That's what God has saved you to do. Translations, I, I have time, so I'll mention it. Translations are, you know, some, I found this to be true as well with uh, just people who don't know. They don't know that translations are different. Bible translations are very different, and some are better than others, but it's good to compare Bible translations. But as an example, um, the NIV, which is a good translation, it takes this a different direction. It translates this a little differently. So instead of seeing that word for there in the text that we looked at as a purpose or a goal, it sees it as a result. But that changes the passage. So it's good to, to compare translations when we're looking at them and not to assume that every translation is the same. Uh, we, we use the English Standard Version here because we think it's a very excellent translation, getting very close to the original text and attempting to be readable at the same time. But in the, in the NIV, and I, I use the NIV, but it says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers so that you have it you just have it don't think that's what is going on here in fact one writer says that the niv translates the clause as if the goal has already been reached so that you have a sincere love for your brothers peter's intention was not to comment on whether they were actually fulfilling the purpose instead he simply communicated the purpose for which they were converted and having done that now look back at the text it begins to make sense where we get the command from, okay? 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another <laughs> earnestly from a pure heart. So at the end of verse 22, we have the love command, which follows naturally in light of what Peter has just said, if we understand it as I've just explained it to you. Since loving one another is the goal or purpose of your conversion or purification, you must love one another from a pure heart. By the way, notice it says one another. Just, you know, detail, certainly, but that means it's a mutual love. Mutual. It's, uh, it's not one-sided. It is anticipated that it would be uh, both. And I, and I only point that out because... Sometimes we come into the church, uh, we get saved, but we still are dealing with our sinfulness and our selfishness, right? And so we look out at the church and we go, it's your responsibility to love me. In fact, often, some folks in the church, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, look specifically to the leadership of the church, the elders, and say, it's your responsibility to love me, and that's the end of it. Okay, we have a responsibility to love you, certainly, you have a responsibility to love us as well. And not just us, but the church. We are just part of the church. You, you get what I'm saying? It's a mutual thing. So he's not saying, you know, you just feed Bob. He's saying, you and Bob feed one another. Now, don't say, well, I'm only going to feed you or love you if you first love. That's not, then that's not biblical love. But I'm just pointing that out to say it's to be mutual. Are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you just in a place where you're saying, am I getting enough love? Are they loving me? And if not, I'm not going to do anything. Why don't you do your part, which is all that you can do, trust the Lord, 
and see what happens. Now notice that he doesn't just say love one another, but rather he says love one another earnestly. Do you see that in the text? Another Bible uh, translation I've referred to earlier, the New American Standard, says fervently. So I'll go a little bit different direction this morning than maybe you've heard this before. Because much is made of, uh, sometimes, of the word fervently or earnestly, and, and then the, the sermon kind of goes down that line. And it may very well, it could be translated fervently or earnestly. But Greek scholars inform us, and I'll tell you why I'm saying all this, that the meaning of the word translated earnestly in the ESV could also be translated continuously or without ceasing or constantly. Okay? It is pointed out that outside of the Bible, it was used, this Greek word, figuratively for speaking at length. On and on and on. Stretching it out. Now, in light of what Peter says next, or the immediate context that we find this command in, I am persuaded that constant or continuous love for one another in the body of Christ is actually what Peter is calling for or commanding of his Christian readers and of us by extension. Or to say it another way, our love for one another in the body of Christ is to be a persevering love. Persevering love. It perseveres. Storms, trials, problems, friction, it perseveres. It continues on. It does not cease. At least, it's not to cease. It often does, but it's not supposed to. Uh, One Greek scholar just says that the Greek word may refer either to the fervency or the constancy of love but that the latter, constancy, is more likely in the present context. Another writer just points out that the characteristic of a Christian community is fervent or constant love for one another, but probably the latter idea, constant, is intended here. Because, as you'll see in a second, Peter emphasizes certain ideas in the following text, or the text that follows this, such as permanence, endurance, and incorruptibility, that is, it doesn't die. It doesn't die. Now look back at the text, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 now through 25. So, you are to love one another without ceasing. That's, that's the way I understand it. You are to love one another without ceasing from a pure heart. Okay, without ceasing you are to love one another from a pure heart. Since, here we are, since, this is why, You have been born again, but he doesn't end there, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Then verse 24 is just him quoting the Old Testament to support his argument that this word of God is enduring and abiding and does not die. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, and there he says, for all flesh, all flesh, animals, people, is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Okay? There's the quote from Isaiah. And this word is the good news, the one that they were obedient to and purified their souls, that was preached to you. Okay? Just in case they missed it. 
So, you should love one another, okay, follow the logic, but how? Constantly, continuously, or without ceasing. Why? Because you have been born again, but not just born again, but born again through the living and abiding word of God, through the imperishable or enduring life-giving seed. So what is Peter getting at? Let me quote one writer here. This might be helpful. He says this. In verses 23 through 25, Peter sets out to show the basis of the love for which he calls. He does this by stressing the relationship between the nature of our new birth and the nature of Christian love. The new birth was brought about by the seed of the word of God. The nature of this seed, or the word, is that it is living and abiding. This word abides forever. As the word of God lasts forever, so should our love for one another. Our love should be lasting because the seed, the word, by which we were begotten and purified is everlasting. So really what you have here is Peter appealing to the purification of our souls that was accomplished at salvation, being the very foundation for our Christian love. And now again, turning to our new birth, but this time to establish the basis for perseverance in that love. Now consider with me the historical context. Okay, we've talked about this before, but what was the church facing? Right, they weren't, this wasn't like, you know, easy life. Everything's going smooth. They were under persecution, suffering for their faith. Okay? And one writer just, you know, commenting on that, and it makes sense if we think about it. Suffering can turn small irritations into conflict and trigger friction that otherwise might not exist. Do you know what he's talking about? I mean, you can just experience any kind of suffering, body suffering, mental suffering, work suffering, whatever. Suffering elevates the opportunity in any given home, among relationships, for bad things to happen, for conflict to break out, for not love to be expressed to one another, but something else to be expressed. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, just making sure. So, in light of that, right, Peter is summoning the suffering church to love, to love, calling them to remember that they were purified for such love and calling them based on the word of God that brought them this new abiding life and brings them the ability to love in this way to persevere in that love. And as one writer says, not to let the winds of persecution extinguish that love. We whose souls have been purified, converted, must not only love one another, beloved, but persevere in that love. We must, we must listen, choose. Remember, it's the love of choice. We must choose to not cease loving our brothers and sisters in Christ regardless of any circumstances. 
that might tend to tempt us to do otherwise. We are to persevere. We talk about persevering in our faith. Yeah, we are to persevere in our love for one another. You think, I was thinking about this, and maybe this will bring it closer to home for you, but there are always marriage uh, difficulties and problems, and even within the church, the church is not immune to such things because they're still wrestling with their sin. Marriages, my experience has proven this to be the case, uh, marriages begin to unwind and disintegrate when that couple stops loving one another. Okay? Often, couples will point to other things uh, that are the problem. So, it's money problems. It's kid problems. Uh, It's health problems. It's relative problems. And those can all be problems. (laughs) No doubt. But those really aren't what break a marriage. They aren't. What breaks a marriage is a lack of love. And I would say without a Christian foundation, you really can't love in the way that God has called you to love, this self-sacrificial love, so you're already kind of starting off on a, not already kind of, but are starting off on a bad course. You need the Lord, you need his purification, you need his power to love. But let me just say, the problem is not these other things. Generally speaking, it's not. Because if you were loving one another through all that, you know that song, all you need is love, dun, 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 dun. And the younger generation goes, we have no idea what you're talking about, and don't ever sing again. And that wasn't singing, I was just rehearsing the... And, pe- and I know, you know, as parents, you're like, you tell your kids, that is so dumb. Uh, y- you-, you need more than love to make it through a marriage, <laughs> right? Now, again, they're talking about that love there. I don't think they're talking about the kind of love I'm talking about. They're just talking about that emotion and feeling, probably the affection. So bear with me here. But if we're talking about real biblical love, I'm going to steal it. If we're talking about real biblical love, yeah, yeah, that is what you need. All you need is that, right? Because we tell our kids, no, no, especially our daughters, marry a man who has a good job and money because you'll find out right away that love will not buy groceries. <laughs> and I get that. I get it. I get it. But so you go through that together poor. And you work through it and you trust God and he brings, I mean, but he can have all the money in the world and you never have to worry about buying groceries. And if you have not love, I think Paul says something about this. Not the grocery part. <laughs> you have nothing. If a church have not love for one another, it has nothing. Can have a big, beautiful building, but without love, it's nothing. A marriage can look good from the outside, but if it has not love, there's nothing to that marriage. And again, don't think, well, I don't have love anymore because I don't have that feeling. That's not what I'm talking about, though. If the man and the woman are not in obedience to God, exercising love, biblical love to one another, that marriage is in trouble. I said all that to say this. Many churches struggle to exist for various reasons, and sometimes they have to close their doors. And maybe some of them should close their doors because maybe they are not churches that honor and glorify the Lord, and the Lord knows those things. But I think in many cases they 
There are good churches who are just struggling to make it. And I am persuaded, having seen some of these stories myself, that it is often due to a failure of the body of Christ to love one another as God has called them to. Right? Divisiveness among the body of Christ and the local fellowship. Divisiveness. Or doing things that cause division. Is that love? That is not love. How about pettiness? Getting worked up over things that shouldn't matter and then attacking one another or complaining or grumbling and getting others to join your your cause. That's not love. That's not a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that's seeking the highest good of the body of Christ. Because that leads to church splits. That leads to cliques. That leads to factions. Lack of service. Lack of service in the body of Christ is a lack of love. Biblical love. Churches struggle. Now this is true across the board. I'm going to tell you. Churches struggle to find enough people to do ministry. So it limits their ministry, or, and it makes ministry much more difficult for those who are trying to pick up the pieces. So what, what do churches do all the time? They end up, the person who says, I'll do it. They just say, here, will you do this too? I'll do it. Will you do this too? Okay, I'll do it. And we just burn them out because we don't have, because we have a bunch of people just kind of sitting in the church and consuming, not loving that's what they're doing. They're not, it's not that they're not serving. They're not loving. Or they're failing to some degree in that love. Lack of commitment is a lack of love. If you love the body of Christ, you would be committed to the body of Christ. And that manifests itself in various ways. Gossip. Lack of love. Slander. Lack of love. And all of these things are things that are warned against in the Scriptures. But all of them beloved, are a lack of love for one another. You have been purified with the purpose that you would love your brothers and sisters in Christ sincerely and genuinely, and you are called by God to persevere in that love. May we do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word I thank you for your church. It is a blessed thing, and I am so grateful to be a part of it and be together, brought together with my brothers and sisters in Christ here. Father, help us remember the things that we've learned today, and not just remember, but help us make changes where necessary to align ourselves more completely with your will. It's right here. Father, may we not make excuses. But may we just obey, trusting you that your way is the best way for our lives and for the church. Help us, Father, to continue to persevere in our love, even when circumstances might push back against that or tempt us to do otherwise. We have been purified We have been cleansed. We have been converted. We have been made new creatures in Christ. 
that we may do this very thing, that we may manifest the love of God to one another. Help us to do that, Father. Help us to to persevere in that love. Help us, Father, not to cease. And if we do, may we repent of such things. And Father, if we are loving, and to the degree that we are loving, we give you praise and we give you thanks, but may we excel. May we excel. For your honor and your glory, that the world would look upon the church and see it as the beautiful and wonderful thing that it is supposed to be, you intended it to be. Help us to be that, Father, for your honor. In Christ's name, amen.